Last week, Brandon painted a picture of what is to come one day in resurrection. Not that just one day our souls will leave our body and ascend to some ethereal place, but like when Jesus resurrected from the dead in bodily form, one day we too will resurrect in bodily form. That when it comes to life eternal, Christ does not start at like zero, does not start at like nothing, but takes the material of the world and reforms, reshapes, and renews it for what the closing chapter of the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. But as we look into today's text, we get to learn a bit about what Dr. Luke, so for those of you that don't know, like Luke and Acts go together. They have the same author, Luke, who is a doctor. So Luke Acts, but we get to see what Luke thinks about some of the most important moments worth sharing when Christ was resurrected here in chapter one. So while last week we looked a bit at the concept of resurrection, and as we continue to press into Easter tide, we want to continue to lean into like resurrection power for the people of God. We want to look at Jesus' instructions while on earth and as he ascends or like floats up before their eyes, before the disciples. We want to, we want to really get and understand what Luke is doing in this text. And so verse one, if you have your Bible open, uh, to Acts 1, or just go ahead and keep it there. We'll be there the majority of our time today. Uh, Luke opens with this line in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So this former book is what we call the Gospel of Luke. And, and Luke begins Acts with a link. So scholars actually call it like Luke's, Luke Acts. They're knit together. And so, so Luke begins connecting these two. So this is like... Luke also reminding us that like you have to start with the first book. You have to start with Luke before you get to Acts. It would be like if you read uh, Chamber of Secrets in the Harry Potter series before you read Sorcerer's Stone. Like you've gotta get Sorcerer's Stone in order to get Chamber of Secrets or, what I, or like the Two Towers instead of the Fellowship of the Ring, whatever your book choice is. But, but here Luke reminds us like you have to start with the Gospel of Luke before you get to Acts. And Luke here is writing to Theophilus, who is likely like funding Luke while he goes and collects these stories about Christ and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. So Luke just links these really, really clearly in verse one and two. In Luke referencing the former book, the Gospel of Luke, um, he, he summarizes that here in verse one by describing it as the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And that word began in that first verse is the one I really want you to notice. It could also be translated that Jesus made a beginning or made a new beginning. These things in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke is like Jesus' beginning work. Not just finished, but beginning. And the role of the Gospels is to reveal to us the person and the life of Jesus. This is like a biography. And so what we wanna see in, in this first verse is Luke pointing backwards and say like this, this part of the story is a biography about who Jesus is and what he instructs his followers to do, but that is just the beginning of his work. His work is not concluded there. If we move on to verse two in Acts one, it says, until the day he was taken up, Jesus, until the day Jesus was taken up to heaven, 
after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Luke here is briefly introducing the entire book of Acts in this second verse. He gets into the details a bit later about Jesus' ascension, but here in verse one, he has talked about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And then in verse two, he talks about Christ's ascension and Jesus giving instructions before his ascension. So he talks about, again, in verse one, what Jesus has began to do, and then in verse two, Christ's ascension and the instructions Jesus gave before his ascension. If verse one is about the book of Luke, then verse two is about the book of Acts. And we should see really clearly that what Luke is trying to communicate here is this is like a one-sentence summary of all of Luke's book of Acts. This is a one-sentence summary. Verse two is a one-sentence summary of what is going to continue to unfold, almost a thesis statement if you remember that far back to school. And what's interesting about the way Luke writes this is like the proper order, in particular if you look at verse two, the proper order would be like Jesus gave instructions through the Spirit and then he ascended. That would be the proper order. That's like the linear order. But what Luke does is different than that. What Luke does is he says, Jesus ascended and then he goes back to the reality that Jesus has given instructions through the Holy Spirit. So in verse two, like Luke reverses the order, or maybe a bit more simply, if you think of it numerically, it's like in verse one, Luke is saying like Jesus did and taught and then in verse two, he like goes to the, the third thing instead of the second thing and then comes back to the second thing. Or maybe most simply, how it plays out in life is Jesus lives and teaches. Jesus gives instructions through the Holy Spirit to his disciples and then he ascends to heaven. But the way Luke talks about it or the way Luke frames it is Jesus lives and teaches. Jesus is taken up into heaven and then Luke goes back to Jesus' instructions through the Holy Spirit. And this detail we wanna notice because it's actually really, really, really important that, that Luke reverses the order. Because this, in reversing the order, Luke points out the specific detail that Jesus gives these instructions through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives these instructions through the Holy Spirit and again, in this verse, Luke is framing the entire book of Acts. He is saying Jesus' teachings began something new by his words and deeds in the book of Luke. And then in the book of Acts, he ascends and returns to giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. So this is a continued movement of Christ. This is something he is still actively doing. It seems like Luke is saying Christ's ascension does not stop the instruction from God through the Holy Spirit. And this is like genius level literary design, by the way. But the book of Acts, as we'll come to see and explore, is, is called like most commonly the book of Acts, but these are acts of something. And there's two ways kind of church history has described the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, which implies, as you'll see in chapter two, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Or as I prefer most commonly, these are like the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of God filling his people. 
And what Luke is getting after is that Jesus is still giving instructions to his disciples in the book of Acts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, he's still giving instructions to his followers today empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that is both like the introduction to the book of Acts from Luke, but we will also just continue to see the rest of this series um, unfolding as the Holy Spirit is poured out onto followers of Jesus to continue the mission of redemption that God from the very beginning has always been about. Does that make any sense whatsoever? A couple nods, so three of you, thank you. I apologize to the other people in the room. Let's continue in verse three, four, and five. After his suffering, Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting here is the way that Luke summarizes like Jesus's story. He he mentions suffering about crucifixion and death. He mentions resurrection, that Christ has been bodily raised to life again. And this is much more than just like a throwaway statement. This is a legitimate like apologetical, a a legitimate reason to believe in Christ, to believe in the Christian narrative, to believe in the Christian story because Christ literally rose from the dead in bodily form. And we could spend a lot of time there, but there's so much in this text that we can't spend a lot of time there. But what Luke has the opportunity to do also is highlight the things that Jesus spent his time talking about when he resurrected from the dead. I would think if you think Jesus is the son of God, which I do, and it seems like Luke does as well, that that the things that Jesus says post death and resurrection are really, really, really important things. These aren't to be like glanced over or thrown away. Jesus, the great teacher, the Messiah, the prophet, the rabbi, suffers and dies, resurrects in bodily form as the Son of God, and what does he say? What does he talk about? Verse three, Luke says clearly, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. He spoke about, Jesus, spoke about the kingdom of God, which leaves us with the question, what? is the kingdom of God. What is it? And I actually am gonna make most of you pretty uncomfortable for just a second. We're gonna take some time. And I want you just to like sit with that question. If you have a journal, I want you to write down like, what do I think the kingdom of God is? This is a really, really, really important question. What is the kingdom of God? So I, I am a, a teacher, for those of you that don't know, one of my students is here, two of them, hi. Um, but, but I'm really okay with like awkward silence and I apologize for that. Because there is often that I ask a question to my students and then I am silent and waiting for them to respond. And so we're actually gonna have like an extended period of silence while you sit with this question for just a little bit. What is the kingdom of God? How would you define the kingdom 
of God. And if that feels really foreign and really abstract, I just want to like invite you to begin by thinking about the term kingdom. What is a kingdom? So for 30, 45 seconds until I feel like it's gone on too long, which I have a longer ability to wait than most of you, so it'll probably feel miserable for you, but for 30 or 45 seconds, I'm just gonna be silent. I'm gonna allow you to reflect on this question. What is the kingdom of God? Well done. Maybe, I don't know, I don't know what you said. We're gonna go around the room and share our answers. Uh, Starting with, I'm just kidding. Silence is an important part of church history and an important spiritual discipline. That's a whole nother teaching, but well done. For a minute, you sat silently in a room full of people uncomfortably. But this question, what is the kingdom of God, is a really, really important question. And it's actually something in my own life and in my own story that when, when for those of you that know Jackie, my wife and I, um, when we moved to Bend, it's actually something I began to hear of that I had not heard much of in my Christian raising or in my discipleship to Jesus. For, for most of my uh, like teenage and on years, I had followed Jesus, but I had never really heard about the kingdom of God. It's not something I ever considered. Heard a lot about the word gospel, but didn't hear about the word kingdom of God, which is actually really interesting because Jesus, and the way he talks about it, knits those two together. He doesn't pull them apart. But, but it was actually when I began to hear about the kingdom of God that, that this was a way, this specific phrase, the kingdom of God, is actually something that burned inside of me when it came to church planting back in Bakersfield. When I would hear people say the kingdom of God or I would read in the scriptures the kingdom of God or what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, there was like quite literally a burning in my heart for this city that we would be a part of a new community of people who followed Jesus that pressed into what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. But most of us, even if we've read the gospels hundreds of times, we breeze right over these words, much like I have the first like 12 years I followed Jesus. And I had no real definition or understanding of what the kingdom of God is or was or was like. It just seemed to be something Jesus talked about. And what's interesting is when you begin to like go on a journey to understand the kingdom of God, you actually see how imperative, how like knit together this is with the king, with Jesus. Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar, has done some work on the like vitality of seeing and understanding Jesus in the kingdom of God. And he says this, I had to share this quote after we did our writing plan because it would make us all feel really bad and we would never think about it otherwise. Gordon Fee says this, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have a Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore we have literally done Jesus in. And while his language is strong, what he's saying is like, you can't have a king with no kingdom. These two things go together. 
You can't, like, and Mark Sayers says often, we are a culture and a world that, like, want, we either want the kingdom, we want things to be right and just, but we don't want the king, or we want the king, but we don't want to put in the work to manifest the kingdom, to partner with the Holy Spirit in, like, redeeming and renewing things on earth as it is in heaven. Some people think that when we talk about the kingdom of God, that it's only spiritual, that it manifests itself only in unseen ways. And others would say that the kingdom of God is primarily about making things that are broken in this world right again, tackling issues of injustice and the physical experience of this world. Others would say that the kingdom of of God is what we experience when we die and go to heaven that when we leave this world, then we taste of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God has secured just for our future post-death. But none of these descriptions on their own seem to capture the fullness of the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is Jesus never answers this question directly. It appears that when Jesus uses this language, his hearers know what he is talking about. I think the simplest way of of putting a definition that's understandable for us today, regardless of where you are in your understanding of the scriptures, what's easy to wrap our heads and hearts and minds around, and that's why I asked, like if, if this word or this phrase, kingdom of God, scares you, start with the word kingdom, is because a kingdom means that there is a place where a king has power. And a king also has people. And so Patrick Schreiner summarizes it in this way. The kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. That is a kingdom. When ancient hearers would have heard Jesus talk about the kingdom, this wasn't like we all live in a democracy with a president. Kings and kingdoms are not on our radar. We may like watch the royal wedding, but that's about as far as we get. So, so this type of speak, this type of language is not far off language to ancient hearers. This is real. This is like what's in front of them. This is like Herod's palace is not that far away. So when they hear the word kingdom, they think of the king's power, they think of the king's people in the king's place. Or maybe more plainly for us today, we should think about Jesus, the enthroned king, who uses his power in partnership with his people, wherever they are, toward manifesting God's will on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the kingdom of God is is not abstract. The kingdom of God is concrete. It is incarnate, it is embodied, it is divine and human. It is just like Jesus, like it has manifested on earth. It is power, it is people, and it is place. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God, the ancient hearer would have heard and thought, like the ancient Jewish hearer would have thought of a new Jerusalem, a new place, a new mountain, a new geographical location ruled over by a king. God is bringing his rule to the earth in a specific space and will partner with the people he is king of and will work to make something beautiful or Edenic, like the garden again. 
And just as Brandon taught last week as a, a physical embodiment of resurrection, we have to see the kingdom of God as a physical manifestation of the rule and reign of God. Too often in evangelical Christianity, when we think of God's rule and reign, we think of it as a spiritual thing rather than an earthly thing, and it is a both and type of thing. It is both spiritual and earthly. Jesus is both God and man. And the kingdom exists in the heavens and on earth. And Jesus continues that while he began this process of the kingdom of God breaking in on earth, it has not been brought to its entirety or what scholars would call the both now and not yet, that we get to taste and experience God's kingdom. We get to lean into God's kingdom now, but it is not fully manifest yet, but one day it will be. One day, God's kingdom will be fully manifest. Everything will be under the rule and reign of Jesus. Let's continue in verse four. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, his disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Verse five, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? See the language, the kingdom to Israel. Verse seven, he said to them, Jesus, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in this text, in Acts 1, 4 through 8, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot to these parts of the story, but we wanna see clearly just a few things, that Jesus is telling his disciples to wait to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the disciples then ask about the kingdom of Israel, and then we hear something near like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, then you will go out and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what I think is important to see first in terms of baptism with the Holy Spirit is that, that Jesus is doubling down on words he shared with his disciples from earlier. In John 16, verse seven, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus is saying that the disciples need to wait because the, Jesus, the thing that Jesus said and promised would come is coming. So they need to wait for this promise of Jesus to be manifest through the power of the Spirit. And the disciples in response to this cry out that this must be the time where Jesus is going to restore Israel, where he's going to throw off the power of Rome and like we talked about in a kingdom sense, he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And this doesn't happen, often the disciples get a really bad rap for asking this question. 
It's not that they're like hyper-nationalists or anything like that, but the story of God has always been about God's power, God's people, and God's place. If you're familiar with the writings of the Old Testament, this is where we see like the temple come into play. This is where God's power manifests amongst his people in a specific sort of place. So they have experienced firsthand that Jesus moves in power. They've experienced that there is a gathering, a forming of a new type of people. So the only question left for them as good students of the Old Testament is when are you going to restore Israel? And in the way of God's kingdom, they see God's power in people, but what they don't see specifically is God's place. So that's why the disciples ask this question about this geographical expectation. The restoring Israel seems to always been a part of the plan. It's the reason many Jewish people today don't believe Jesus is the Messiah because he did not establish a reign and a rule in a militaristic sense in Israel. They thought that Jesus was still going to overthrow Rome and exalt Israel, so that's why the disciples ask this question. And Jesus responds, it's not for you to know, but the Father has set a time by his own authority. And in verse eight, we continue, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice that when the Holy Spirit descends, he descends in power. When the Holy Spirit descends, he descends in power on the life of those whom he falls on. And we will get into that a bit more a couple weeks from today on Pentecost Sunday, June 5th. Don't miss it. I'm already excited for it. But what we want to notice for today is that when the Holy Spirit descends, you have what we have been talking about in all of Eastertide. You now have like resurrection power that lives within you. Not on your own accord, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of the resurrection power that lives inside of you, then we go to be witnesses to the end of the earth. It does not go in your own power and ability and understanding to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Like allow the Spirit of God to empower you and then go to the end of the earth. It's not when you have a Bible degree or you stop that sin or when you feel up to it or when you feel like super Christian enough or when life slows down or when the kids grow up or the list goes on and on and on. It is as the Holy Spirit fills you as someone who believes and follows in the way of Jesus, then you go out into the world. Or another way of saying this is in the, what we call the Great Commission, which is in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, Jesus' words, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here Jesus demonstrates, says, I have all authority on heaven and earth. It's been given to me by the Father and because of that authority, 
He tells us to go out and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded, and then Christ declares he is with them always. And then if we go back to Acts 1, Jesus ascends, he goes away. And we today are commanded, we receive this commission from Jesus and his authority to spend our lives making disciples. You see, this is not our mission. This is God's mission as a part of his inbreaking kingdom of God and has always been his mission. It's from the very beginning of the story and it is even for the life of the church today until Jesus returns. As we follow Jesus, this is what we are supposed to do. But how do we do it? What is this like? What does making disciples look like? And there's a million different answers to that question. There's a million different models because discipleship can look different and diverse. But what we want to see in this text is that being sent out on mission does not mean that we figure out what to do, but we allow, like we invite, we pray for more of God in us. In, in Acts words, in Luke's words, more of the Holy Spirit. And then we go and we live in relationship with other people. And that is how discipleship happens, not through some program or structure, but through relationship together. As empowered people by the Spirit of God, we lean in with those far from God or growing closer to God and we participate in the work that God is already doing. And so if you don't know specifically what this looks like in your life, the first thing I would tell you is not to go read a bunch of books about it, but to like lean into the Spirit of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you again. There's lots of like fancy literature about discipleship, but I think my conviction, at least in this moment, at this time, maybe it'll change, I don't know, is like if we just fall radically in love with the person of Jesus, and we lean in relationally to the person of Jesus, that this has to be the reality that permeates our lives. If we like love Christ as our deepest desire and allow ourselves to be given over to him in his ways, of, like of course this will become a part of the story. This is what the king does in his kingdom. This is what he does. And so I think the invitation for us today is like, Spirit of God, would you fall afresh on us again? Or even as we were praying in pre-gathering pre prayer, like would you dig that well in our lives again that your spirit may fill it? Because ultimately this mission, it, like this mission of making disciples, this mission of redeeming and renewing, this doesn't belong to us. We get to participate in it, but it's not ours. It's like this is God's mission. We have a role a rule to play to be sure, but this is not like, this is not primarily yours, this is primarily God's. Christopher Wright says, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as it is that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church, you and I, the gathered people of Jesus, we 
We were made to like participate in what God is already doing. Participate in his mission. So this is God's mission. These instructions and commands from Jesus is to participate with God in the things he's already doing. This is ultimately, like ultimately his mission is accomplished by him through the power of his people. He invites you to partner with him, to work with him in his mission, but again, it's by the power of the Spirit that we even like join him in participating. And so when we say like this, is, this mission is not for the church, but the church is for the mission, what we need to understand clearly is when, when we say church, what we're talking about is God's people. This is not about church in the religious organization sense. This is not about membership and attendance. This is about the thing Jesus cannot stop talking about, which is about the kingdom of God. And if I am honest, like it feels in, it, like we are in a moment post-COVID, post-Black Lives Matter, post-2020 and 2021, like we are in a moment of redefining the way church looks for the next generation. That we are like in a moment on the edge of reforming what is going to happen for the church moving forward. And when we say the church, I am again mean God's people moving forward. It feels like if we don't begin to centralize the kingdom of God as our highest priority, rather than like protecting a religious institution, that like the church is going to drift into death and the next generation will not want to participate. In it. We have to allow the thing that Jesus keeps as the centerpiece to be the thing that we also keep as the centerpiece. That our deepest desires and the manifestations of the Spirit and what God is doing in the kingdom, like that that is the center priority of God's gathered people. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And what, what does that mean? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? For most of us, we have really busy lives. I think probably everyone in the room could attest to that reality. We are very, very busy. And most of us have experienced that like, what we're supposed to do is like churchy things. And I think one of the things that Jesus is inviting us to do is, is as we fall in love with him and as we see the inbreaking kingdom of God and we say yes to God's mission of redemption and renewal and disciple making, one of the things we have to do is, is be willing to redream what my life is oriented towards, not toward the church and participation. That is important, I, yes but more towards the kingdom of God and the mission of God. And sometimes those two things, at least in my own history, feel like they compete with one another. And we, as a young forming community, want to champion the kingdom of God above all else. I remember when Jackie and I uh, went to help church plant in Bend, Oregon, and this is just like a really practical example of leaning into kingdom. Um, 
the church the, that we helped start there was maybe six months, eight months old, and we faithfully participated in forming this community. Every time the doors were open, we were there contributing to the formation of this community, much like so many of you have been here at River and Way. But one of the distinct marks of mission that God had just instilled in us while we were there is that the specific neighbors that we lived next to that whenever they invited us to anything, we said no to everything else to ensure we could have a faithful presence in the lives of our neighbors. And so, so I share that as like, so, so Super Bowl Sunday, we would like gladly skip church to be with our neighbors. Does that make sense? And so we have to like re-envision and reimagine discipleship to Jesus as we like live into the kingdom of God and the mission that he has for us. And we have to be willing to like throw some of the old clothes away in order to put on new ones. Because ultimately our lives, and I think collectively in this room, we would say like as our deepest desire is that we would see the king's power manifest through the king's people in the king's place. That we would love to see the kingdom of God break in more and more and more to where like the spirit does whatever he pleases because we like... The word let is not a good word, but like we create and posture ourselves to allow God to have his way. So with our words and our lives built around the centrality of the good news of the kingdom of God, we baptize people and teach them to obey all the things Jesus taught. And this is the missional work that we have been called into. This is quite literally, if you've been baptized in, in like under the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this is the mission work you have been baptized into. Baptism is bodily for a purpose because it's a part of heaven breaking in on earth. This is the kingdom work that Jesus commanded us to do and obey and live out. This is the work that Jesus has called us to do, period, full stop. This is the work Jesus has called us to do, period. There is no caveat to this statement. There is no twist and turn. There's no justification. There's no reason to abandon this responsibility. This is God in the flesh telling his disciples, telling you and me that the good news of the kingdom of God has to go into the world and we are the mechanism by which that happens. That, like that, has always been God's plan A and seems, as far as I can tell for the scriptures, will always be. That you and I as followers of Jesus, like his plan is to partner with us that the good news of the kingdom spreads across the whole world. Think about the reality for a second that we sit in Bakersfield, California, having inherited a story 2,000 years old because a whole bunch of people between then and now have been faithful to this text to go and make disciples of all nations. And here we are in Kern County. I'm sweating, it's hot, I get it. Here we are receiving an inheritance because faithful people have gone before us. So in essence, like, this is your life and it is our turn. This is real. 
the question of like, what is the next generation going to inherit about following Jesus is answered by us. We have the opportunity to live faithfully in making disciples, not, not of just like church going, but of like radically following the way of Jesus. And sometimes we hyper-spiritualize that, and I just want to normalize it for a second. Radically following the way of Jesus may be like moving across the world to like share the good news of Jesus with an unreached people group, but it may be like showing up faithfully to work and to your wife or husband and your children. The like, oh, thank you. Can I get this sweaty? It's gonna be, I feel bad. Not anymore. <laughs> this commandment starts near before it goes far. It starts with the people near to us, starts with your children, starts with your parents, starts with your siblings. And if you're anything like me, those are some of the hardest conversations, not the easiest ones. But, but it begins close by with the things like already revealed that we've been called, placed, I would say, to live as a part of. That is where fulfilling this commandment begins. It's in our own homes and in our own lives and at the places we work. You see, being sent on God's mission in, in the evangelical West, mission is this like, you go on a mission. No, you live as a part of God's mission today. Like that's the invitation of following Jesus. And it may mean you have to go across the country or across the world or wherever, but it may mean you have to stay. It may mean you don't get to leave. It may mean that God's called you to a very specific set and group of people and you may not even wanna be there, but that is the place where God has put you. And so the question isn't, are you there or not? It's, are you going to faithfully carry this commandment to live out the mission of God where you already are? Not waiting for some day to become something like following Jesus today. And if you don't know where to take people, take them to where you are. Take them to like loving Christ. Take them to reading the Gospels. Take them to reading the Psalms. And that's like, that's as much for you as it is for me. Don't, don't mishear me. We all have this participation in the work of the kingdom of God that we are invited to. Not one day, not somewhere else, but like right where you are today. Not changing a thing a circumstance of your life, but being intentional about leaning into Christ and, and allowing like the kingdom of God to be an intentional awakening in your minds, in your heart and in your life that, that you become aware of the things God is doing around you. Because sometimes, at least for me in my own experience, when I think about this, it's like I have to go manufacture this new thing and that's not true. God is at work amongst you. He's at work amongst the people and the lives that you interact with. And so the question is more about, am I going to intentionally lean into the things that I see God is already doing? 
Am I gonna say yes to leaning into hard and healthy conversations even though they may be rejected? But I think that's the invitation. That's the thing my heart is beckoned towards. Or am I gonna say yes to like having the awkward conversation with the coworker about whatever, but I hear them curiously wondering about like spirituality in some regard and, and you may not have all the apologetical reasons and answers, but you have your story. And we can share our story. We can share the good news of Jesus with people. That is, that is our instruction. That is our command. And the, the reality is, is the, the power of the Holy Spirit is in you exactly where you are. And that's a cognizant reality that we must be awakened to again. The power of the Spirit. The power of resurrection lives inside of you. It lives inside, like Christ is in you and you are in him. And because of this, like we've talked about God's power and we've talked about God's people and, and one of the things that, that doesn't make sense as much to us that we see as Paul really helps us understand is like if, if the kingdom of God is God's power, I, I get that. Like I can cognitively understand that and, and we are God's people so I can cognitively understand that but like God doesn't have a place in the story. He doesn't have a geographical location. We all don't like make a journey back to Jerusalem to experience the living God. That's not how the story goes. But in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are the place where God dwells for now. In terms of accomplishing his mission, in terms of stepping in faithfully to the great, to the great commission, like, like you are empowered because you are the place where God dwells, or as like, I'm not from the South, I'm from Bakersfield, so I would like to say like y'all are the place where God dwells. This is a communal expression, not like independent yes, communal yes, like both and. But we are the place collectively where God dwells from now. This is where God's power manifests through God's people in God's place, like in the embodied existence here in this room in the city of Bakersfield. And then if we go back to the story, verses nine and 10 and 11, Jesus floats away. It says, like we call this ascension, but floating away is way more fun. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here, having looking, or stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. And so we see like Jesus floats away, he can float, I don't know. I don't know. Jesus ascends to the heavens and two angels come to speak to the men. 
that Jesus has left, but in the same sort of way, he will come back. And in this moment, Luke like begins to wrap a bow on the introduction of the book, on the introduction of the story, on the introduction of the acts of the Holy Spirit. And he shares that like these angels put these three pieces in to context, that Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. And then the angels say, why do you stand here? Like, don't you have somewhere else to be? or something you're supposed to get to? Isn't there a like, next step to the story? Why, why are your feet still here? And lastly, just like this, one day he, Christ, will return. And that's one of the beauties that the universal church, Christian church, disagrees on a lot of things. But one of the things we do agree on is that one day Christ will return in power and in glory. We agree that the Spirit has been sent to his, empower his people to, to bring God's will to fruition on earth until he comes again. And we know that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God to take his rightful place enthroned in the heavens, that the world would be his footstool. So as we begin to wrap up today, I just wanna ask the question like, where is Christ now? In Colossians 1, it says, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. The other place Christ resides is in the heavens. How does that work? That's a great question. You should find someone nearby and talk to them. It's a fantastic question. But the scriptures say both that Christ is in the heavens and Christ is in us. But we know clearly between Jesus' ascension away from the disciples and Jesus' return, we have Jesus both in the heavens and in us, which is a great mystery. But we also know that Jesus sits at the right hand of God because he fills the earth. Ephesians 1, verse 19 and 20 say, the power, notice that word again, the power, and that power in context is the power for those who believe in Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Resurrection power lives inside of you to faithfully fulfill God's mission in and through your life. And I'll tell you just real quickly what I'm praying for this Eastertide season. I'm praying that we believe as a community we can actually live in resurrection power again. The church in many ways has lost its potency and it's not for anything but like lack of empowerment by the Holy Spirit. So I'm praying that we can live in the Spirit's power again. And I'm praying that if I'm like really, really, really honest, I'm praying that for you just as much as I am for me. That like there are so many days where I feel powerless too. 
but this, like these teachings, these scriptures make clear like this is God's plan, that the Holy Spirit would awaken his power in us again. And I want to close where we started. Acts 1 verse 1 says, I wrote, this is Luke's writing in the introduction, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And what I want to remind you with is that like Jesus is inviting and he's doing things now. He's still doing things. Those were the beginning of the things. Jesus is still doing things. And I think as we ponder the question, like what is Jesus inviting us to? I think whatever the like end result is, is probably less important than like what the immediate thing is, is like more of the power of the Holy Spirit. More Jesus, more God, that our life would be more permeated by love for God. And that's actually the place that we begin and the spirit comes on us and empowers us to live in like supernatural ways and extremely ordinary ways. That we don't run off and create our own new thing but we look around to see what God is already doing and we say yes to the way of Jesus breaking in around us. Jesus is still doing and still teaching through the power of the Spirit. And may we as a community, we as individuals have eyes to see and ears to hear and may our hearts and lives say yes to joining Jesus in what he is up to around us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? God, would you come? And would you meet us right where we are? And would you beckon us not to just like more things or more religiosity or more even church? Would you beckon us to like more of you? Would you create a deep desire within our hearts that is like, satisfied by like relationship with you, Jesus? And would you like, would you even like tear everything else away that like our, our one desire, our one true desire would be to live in presence with you, God? And even as I pray those prayers, I recognize that like we actually often don't know how to do that and so would you, would you begin again, God? Would you begin to teach us again, Jesus? We love you and we trust you. And we, like, we yield our lives and ask that your will would be done through us. But like, for my sake and for the people in this room, we beg and we ask, like, Holy Spirit, would you come? This is not a task we take on alone, but a task that we inherit because we too are empowered by the Spirit of God. We too have resurrection power that lives in us because God, because Christ dwells in us as his people. So may we worship Jesus. We want to worship you, Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 
over the course of this next song or as Brandon and Kristen play, why don't we come and get the elements of communion as we worship Jesus together and then we will take communion together.